Hello, hello, folks. Welcome to the Shiny Happy People podcast. Welcome back to our regular listeners. And a warm hello to all our first-time listeners. This is Vinay, your host. Today is a guest interview. And um, it's one of those interviews that um, when you get a guest like this, there's so much to talk about. And he's done so many things. Used I struggle as an interviewer, figure out where to start, how to stay on topic, and not just go off on a hundred different tangents. And in case you're wondering what this is all going to be about, I was very, very fortunate to get connected with this person. One of my colleagues happened to go to Bali on a holiday and went to a resort and ran into Chris and they got talking. And as soon as she came back, she said to me, you've got to get him on this podcast. You've got to interview him and really talk about the amazing stuff that he is doing and has done. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest. Our guest is Chris Brown. Chris Brown lives in Pemutaran in Bali, Indonesia. He is the director and owner of uh, the Reef Scene Divers Resort. Now you might be just wondering, okay, he runs a resort, but there's more folks. Chris is one of the most interesting journeys that I've encountered. He started his career in uh, IBM Australia. And then what is about 32 years ago, 33 years ago, happened to move to Indonesia and got into some amazing work, right? So let me just give you a couple of quick highlights. He runs, he's the founder of the Pemutaran Turtle Hatchery Project, which is helping turtles to be reintroduced and, and thrive in the ecosystem. He is also part of the group that founded or is one of the founders of the reef, coral reef restoration project called the Reef Gardeners of Pemutaran and amazing stuff. And he's changed the way fishing is happening in that part of the world. So there's so much more that he's done, but I'm not going to come in the way of this interview now. Um, so stay tuned for more after this break. Okay, folks, as I said, today we have a very interesting guest, Chris Brown, who's logging in all the way from uh, Bali, Indonesia. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you, Vime. Um, I'm very happy to be uh, a part of it today. And uh, uh, from sunny here, Bali in here, I hope it's not so rainy there in Mumbai, but uh, it's uh, very good to be able to join you. Great, thank you. And I'm actually in Bangalore, but yes, you're in oh, Bangalore, Bali. Sorry. Yeah, no, no worries, no worries. Yeah. So, so Chris, um, you run a diving resort in uh, Pemutan. Is it Permutan? How do you pronounce Pem it? Permutaran. Permutaran. In it actually, needs um, a place to turn around. Oh, nice, cool. So yeah. you run a. You've been running that diving resort since what? 1992 or something. 
Yes, it's been so long, but it's gone so quickly. Since 1992, I first came up here to discover it about 19, late 1991 and actually started things in uh, early 1992. So two questions popped to my mind. First one, how did you get into diving? And because you're Australian from what I gather. And um, the second is what led you all the way to Bali and that too in 1992 or 91? Aha. Okay. That goes back a long, long way till I um, decided not to do rugby league for sport at school in my last year of school and actually took the opportunity to do a diving course, one of the old ones, which was quite difficult, but it took three months to do it as, as a sports subject for school. I did it for a while and then I dropped out for a long time and uh, getting back into it. Well, I, I actually worked for IBM before and as a computer engineer. Um, we got a an award there, and I got a whole set of scuba equipment as the award. Yeah, and that scuba equipment IBM gave you led to you leaving IBM. Wasn't a very good uh, reward <laughs> award, right, for them? Yeah. Well, that was I still had about six years then at IBM after that. So, but it did lead to me leaving there, and. Um, so I got back into diving. I did another dive course. I liked it. And I remember my instructor there said I should become an instructor. And so uh, around 1988 or whatever, I, I started to think, yeah, time to leave IBM. I kind of got in as high as I wanted to there and time to be ready to retire. Uh-huh. And um, uh, I went through and, you know, Decided to do my uh, instructor's course. I completed that in uh, 1989 and uh, actually resigned from IBM just before there after training someone to take over my position. Then uh, did my dive instructor, started diving around uh, in Sydney area, so doing freelance dive fixing and got a job in uh, Cairns on the Barrier Reef and went up there, helped set up a dive business there for the people and uh, and then after about a year of that, I decided to do underwater video work and still do a bit of teaching. And then um, out of the blue, I got asked by a friend who I knew from Cairns, an American guy, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to come up to Bali to set up uh, the diving side of a water sports center that he had to help set up. I said, oh, well, you, um, you paid my fares, give me a salary, somewhere to live and a car and all that. And he said, yep. I said, okay, when do you want me there? So... Uh, it's going to be another couple of months. I thought, right, I'll resign from my, you know, sell my underwater video business in Cairns and um, go and take up all the freebie tours that I had lined up from before. And uh, then he called me and said, Okay, so we've got Chris back. We lost him for a minute because of the internet connectivity there. And Chris is back on his mobile. So, Chris, I was just saying that uh, before we got cut off that. You got the diving equipment, you left IBM, and you had this offer to move to Bali, and then that's when we got cut off. So what happened? Did that offer come through? Did you get on a plane? Yes, that offer came through. I got on a plane um, and was here in Bali, and lo and behold, the first Gulf War started. So everything was very quiet. But that was actually good because I was already here. And already stuck into working, and so uh, uh, that was the start of um, many different happenings here. So yes, wow. 
So, so really, really, really interesting, right? And and it's a culture shift, not just work culture, but also from a country and stuff. And, and I'm guessing back in those days, uh, in, in the 90s, the whole diving community and people who wanted to learn diving was a lot smaller or more niche than today. Would that be more, uh, would that be accurate? Uh, I was still pretty busy, still quite good. So uh, my main job as an instructor was to teach the local people, uh-huh. uh, which was actually quite difficult um, since they, most of them didn't speak English and I didn't speak Indonesian then. So it took me about 80 hours to teach eight hours of normal theory with <laughs> one guy. I was teaching once from the company, uh, with one guy who had broken English. So it was like doing jigsaw puzzle. And parts of it he'd find, parts of it I'd find. But we got through it in 80 hours, and they all turned out to be very good divers. Some are still diving. Some become instructors. Some have their own businesses down in, in Nusa Dua, where I was originally working. So mm-hmm. it was really great to see. So uh, uh, it was a great experience. And then when did you go and start the, the, your, your resort? What led you to that? Okay. Well, after the first year here, I went back to Australia. But the day after I got back to Australia, another company from next door rang me up and said, Bud, can you come up and help us here? So I did the same thing. And whilst working for them, um, my manager, who was an American, he was back home in Massachusetts. And he met up with this guy who was a NASA engineer who did cultural tours in Bali and saying how the guy who was the tour company he was working for were we're looking to build a hotel up here in Pamutaran, right up in the far northwest of Bali, to be accommodation for people going to Manjangan Island. Mm-hmm. So my manager said, hey, I've got this Aussie guy here who's pretty good, might be interested. So about six months later, we met and come up here and visited Pamutaran. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I love it. They went, what? There's nothing here. Yeah, there was three rooms being built at that time. And the place was dry and dusty, and but it just had that feeling of this somewhere special. So I made a proposal to the company I was working for. They weren't interested. So once I finished with them, I come up and decided to do it for myself. Wow! And I'm still here, and it's turned into a big diving one of the top diving locations in Bali now. Yeah, because Pemutaran is is a little bit off the beaten track for the. What do you call it? The traditional tourists who come and go hang out on the beaches and clubs and all of that, right? It 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 is a little bit off the beaten track. Well, to say a little bit would be under underestimating, but it's about the <laughs> furthest place you can go to the from the airport, furthest place you can get to in Bali. Of course, you've got to go either through the middle and turn left, or by the coast and turn right. So yeah. it's the furthest place you can go by road, and that. But. Uh, well, something those days I was like, yeah, I'm happy to get out of the rat race. I'm happy to do something simple. And I've always liked challenges and I've always been a problem solver. So uh, right. it kind of without me knowing it, it's kind of like Pomotran chose me and told me, get your butt up here. you got work to do here. And yeah. uh, I love the people and just love the culture and loved everything about it. And I read somewhere that you were the – First foreigner to settle down in Pemutara? Is that true? Yes, true. I was about the only foreigner living <clears throat> for about 50 kilometers in any or all directions. 
on wow. uh, living here. And uh, but um, I've always gotten well with indigenous people and other ones and all that. And no matter where I went, I've been to Papua New Guinea. I was over in Nauru working with the Indians there for a few weeks. Uh, uh, back in Australia with the Aborigines, I've always gotten well with the the local indigenous, you could say, people, and um, actually felt more at home with the local people and I actually do deal with other fellow Westerners. But uh, And a question, because, you know, before we sort of fast forward to all the amazing stuff you're doing today with the whole uh, turtle hatcheries and the coral reefs and stuff, but was there as much awareness of environmental challenges or how was tourism impacting the area in, in your early days in, in Bali? Or in Pemutu, and what was it more? Have you seen it change a lot? Oh yes, actually there was zero tourism in Bali in uh, Pemutu at that time. Tourism mm. in the south was mainly aid, uh, aid at the Australians, at the Japanese, and uh, people coming over and uh, kind of aiming for almost like the mass tourism. And I come to Pemutu, and there was zero tourism. Right. And I think they'd seen about three white people before I got here. So, and I guess the whole uh, preserving the ecosystem and all of that must have been very strong with the locals, right? Uh, at that time, no. They had no idea about conservation, about protecting. They were doing a lot of, for the sea, they were doing a lot of, uh, you say, cyanide fishing for aquarium fish to collect aquarium fish and dynamite fishing to catch fish to eat, which not very good fish to eat. And uh, they had, uh, when I got here, after I started checking, about 70, 80% of the reefs had been um, almost devastated by these fishing methods. At the same time, the tree life and hills here were pretty well denuded by people collecting firewood, collecting fodder for their cows. It was a very, very poor place here, very poor. A lot of the people had been uh, transmigrated from east of Bali after the earthquake and volcanic eruption there, and also from the islands of Madura, which had been basically denuded and destroyed as well. So a whole lot of poor people doing basic survival living, and that's it. So basically they're doing whatever they could to survive, to you know, feed their families. Most of the children went away to work the females as in factories or as housemaids and the young males going to work as builders or builders laborers elsewhere in Bali. And what was your transition to doing just beyond the diving, right? By the way, are you still an instructor? Do you still uh, give diving lessons to people or have you uh, moved on to? I'm still ratified as an instructor, uh, but I don't teach... Uh, much anymore. I do a lot of informal teaching, just talking with people, passing on um, information to them and ways to you know, make their diving better. But I don't actually do formal teaching anymore. I haven't done that for some years. Um, right. I've had sinus problems, so it's, it makes it a bit difficult to teach underwater. But um, And I've been involved with so many other things, I really don't have time to teach people diving, although I do classify myself still as a teacher. Or many other aspects of life here. Yeah, and, and and that that's a perfect segue to all the many other things that you are doing. And 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 when did all of the uh, 
other conservation work, the turtle hatchery, all of that started. What was the genesis of that? What led you to do okay. that? Um, genesis of the turtle hatchery, well, I was walking back from the only hotel here then, Pondoxari, and back from having lunch, and I saw a guy beside the beach with a, a small green turtle tied up. I said, well, what are you going to do with that? He says, oh, um, satay. <laughs> what? And he kind of indicated cutting the neck and uh, cutting up the satay and cooking it. And I thought, oh, just, oh, I'm hungry. I want to eat. So, um, and he said, do you want to buy it? And I said, well, oh, no, I don't really. But if I don't buy it, what's going to happen? He just said, yeah, satay. Uh, All right. Okay. So I ended up buying off him, even though I thought that would poss possibly run to more people catching turtles and trying to sell to me. And, right. And um, so I bought that off him and uh, put him in a tank at, where we used to watch, watch the dive gear during the day. So I put him in a tank there at nighttime and actually let him out on a long rope into the water during the day. And about two weeks later, someone else came along with another one, a smaller one. I thought, oh, no, it started. But anyway, I ended up buying that as well as against letting it be killed. And it got me thinking, well, why are they doing this? What's happening and all that? And people would see me with these turtles then and call me all sorts of uh, rude names and all that until I talked to them and said, well, I actually try and save these ones. I'm trying to figure out a way that I can save more of them. And then they give me little bits of money and whatever. I think, okay, well, what am I going to do? I got talking with a lot of local people. I used to go walk about uh, when there was no guests, which was quite often. And a funny story I have is I end up having 20 cups of coffee one morning on my walk with everybody inviting me in for a cup of coffee and have a talk. And I thought, oh, I had some there and I can't refuse these people. Otherwise, what they think of me? So, But apart from being totally wired up when I got back to the dive shop, I found out a lot of information. You try 20 cups of uh, strong, <laughs> robust coffee. Oh, my God. I was shaking. I was but what happens, I found out why the people were doing it and their situation. And as I mentioned before, I'm a problem solver in my life, which is why I did so well in the service side at IBM and other places. I uh, could understand that they were doing that because they're just trying to feed their family. They were doing that cyanide fishing, even though they knew they could die from cyanide poisoning, poisoning or decompression sickness and all that. Uh, they were all get arrested. Uh, they're ready to risk that so they could feed their families. And uh, probably you and I would do the same thing if we were in the same situation. So, um, so that got me thinking, how, how can I make it something that will um, protect the turtles and uh, the reefs and all that, uh, but still enable the people to make, be able to feed their families better or make money out of it to feed their families. So um, I came back and I actually was talking to a guy, American guy, who my staff said was pretty weird and sitting on the beach and said, could I go and talk to him and find out what, what was happening? And he turned out to be a, a recovering drug addict. He was cool. from, uh, from New York and he'd been hooked on heroin and cocaine and he'd done rehabilitation and come to Bali to try and get away from any sort of temptation. So, yeah, I had a good chat with him. I've dealt, dealt with drug addicts before. And um, we got along well, and uh, 
he ended up being a really nice guy, really good guy. Anyway, after he left, uh, a couple months later, I got a letter from a lady called Nancy Fox from New York who said, hi, Chris, I've heard all about you from Michael. And I'd just like to say what you want to do is really great that you want to try and save the turtles and all that. I love turtles, diving with the turtles in the Cayman and Caribbean islands. And she said, here's a check for $4,000 to get started. Wow. And I went, what? <laughs> Unfortunately, the check was made out to the turtle project and I couldn't cash it. So I had to send it back to her via mail uh, with a letter saying, I can't cash this. Can you send me another check made to my name? Mm. And lo and behold, she did. And um, that arrived another couple of months later. But that arrived. And so I started the initial turtle project, which was um, uh, building some tanks and a hatchery for it, a uh, hatching area, and started dealing with uh, people from the BKSDA, which is the uh, Indonesian Conservation Department, government conservation people, mm -hmm. who um, taught me to show me and uh, ways to do it, how to look after the eggs and how to look after the hatchlings, all that. And then they ended up coming along sometime and bought me a box of uh, 250 eggs which I'd collected from in East Java to take down to another place in Nusa Dua to hatch. And as I opened the box, they were hatching. So um, everything kind of started there. Wow. So after a while, yeah, after a while, people, local people come to me and say, hey, we found these eggs. Do you want them? And at first, they brought them to me, and some hatched, some didn't. Then after talking with the people who knew about it, mind you, at this stage, what I knew about turtles could write on the back of a postage stamp with a crayon. So now I can use a ballpoint pen. I still don't consider myself an expert on turtles, but uh, I know a bit more than I did then. And uh, so I said, well, how about, um, so I knew what was needed. We wanted to save the turtles and the, the eggs, and we wanted the people to make some money out of it. So I came up with this idea, and I checked it with the government people. I said, how about we... Um, if the people find the eggs, I know they normally sell them to the markets. They get some money. How about if I do a program where I pay a little bit more above the market price and uh, get them? They said, yeah, that's fine. That's that's good. And because uh, they understood what the situation was here. So I go down and tell the people that. And they say, oh, no, we can dig them up and bring them to you. And I said, well, if you do that, you have to wait till they hatch and I'll reimburse you or reward you for once that hatch. Nice. But very if you call me, I'll come down and dig them up and take them because they have to be handled very uh, carefully on that. And, um, and they say, oh, so you do the work. We just stand here and wait, contact you. You come down, do all the work, and we get our money straight away. Oh, no mm -hmm. brainer. Yeah, we'll do it that way. So that's how it started. And um, we built the, the, the tanks and the ponds and all then the uh, nesting area and all started from that. And we started to get people coming and looking at it and drivers who brought people to come diving with us saw it. And then they started to bring people to look at the, uh, the turtles. Uh, for the first 10 years, all the money going for it was coming out of my own pocket, which was fine. But then I found out that the, the drivers were making good money bringing people here to, to see the turtle hatchery. So I ended up asking for a, a donation for people. I told the drivers that. And so we started to get, the equivalent of uh, what, or twenty thousand rupiah then, which is the equivalent of uh, two Australian dollars. I don't know how much in Indian money, Indian rupee. Um, it's now gone up to four. It's doubled in uh, 
30 years has doubled to 40,000. Uh, that's how it all started. And uh, was just with, I don't know how you say it, but everything just kind of happened to me since I left IBM has kind of been on a guideline to doing what I'm doing now, uh, learning wow. everything and different things. It's just like someone is actually driving me there without me knowing. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm very happy to have that driver. Yeah, well, you're definitely doing something a lot more impactful, meaningful, and, and you know, it's making a difference, right? You're listening to the Shiny Happy People podcast with Vinay Kumar. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. This podcast is sponsored by C2C OD, your organizational development consulting partner bringing people and strategy together. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook using the handle at C2COD and get updates on our upcoming episodes. Did the whole outlook to going in, you started with the guy with the turtle saying he's going to make satire with it. Has that changed? Have people become, have the locals become a lot more conservation oriented whether it is turtles or the 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 the, the way they fish or the, uh, the the coral reefs which we haven't talked about but yes it has yeah it has um after all this time now they say oh no we never at turtles we never at the eggs we never took the eggs we've always sent them to to reef scene um and yeah. um, it's kind of like just going on with that. Uh, so I've made it where the local people are making more money by protecting, and they've realized that now. Worked a lot with the young kids, with the schools, the primary schools, the preschools, and at our higher schools. And so they, a lot of them come back to me. They're now parents on their own, and they say, oh, yeah, my kid's coming down to see the turtles because I remember when I was a kid and come to see that. Right. And that, so it's kind of changed their thinking from uh, destroying to get – um, be able to feed their family to protecting. So it's a good thing. It's a win-win for the turtles. Of course, the eggs have a chance to hatch. The hatchlings get head started, have a chance to survive better, and they come back. And right. a couple of big things which, which has happened with this is that I heard about uh, one guy had caught a big green turtle and he was going to slaughter it. And I was literally on my way down there to um, – I don't know what, I was in a pretty foul mood. And uh, my staff actually held me back. But later that day, I found out the guy's neighbours all went there and stopped him and said, no, you put that back to sea because you take that out of there, you're breaking the chain and none of us are going to make any money. I'd also taught the local people that uh, when I got down there to collect the eggs, I could explain to them that, you know, the um, – the turtle can come back between two and eight times in the season and lay more eggs. You go, really? Oh, I just got this much money. Now, if it comes back again, I can make more money or my other neighbors, friends along the beach here can make money, in which case they won't come and borrow money from me, which I'll never get back and which I can't say no, so they can get their own money. And that, So they kind of start to understand. And a lot of people said to me when I first come up here, oh, you don't want to go there. The people are stupid. They're dumb. It's too hard to work with. But what I realized after some time here was they weren't stupid. They were just educated differently. 
they could go right. and fish it with what to do. They knew what herbs and things to get for medicines from the forest and how to provide for the families. And you know, fish without the modern lures, but just lures that they make up themselves and all sorts of things. So you know, they could look at us and go, well, oh, you guys are stupid. Yeah. You know? Same as we would say to them. But once you meet them, understand what's happening, go, no, they're not stupid. They're just educated differently. Right. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's a great example of grassroots work, right? So you started right where it happens and, and how it's evolved yeah. as well. And it, it's it's funny because today we use the word ecotourism. There's uh, there's all of these big words that's used. Yeah. But in, in essence, you are like the founder of it over there uh, in your area. And you've created a whole financial system around it as well. So when did you start to do the, uh, so you did the turtles, I I'm guessing with all your diving, being in the water, you saw the reefs also get impacted and then you started yeah. your other organizations uh, as well. Yeah. So. Well, we started yeah. protecting the reefs because there's so much damage being done to them. Mm -hmm. And I was this horrible white guy who kept calling the police to come and arrest the people doing the aquarium fishing because it was illegal and arrest the dynamite fishermen. So in a way, I was pissing off a lot of people, but uh, hopefully I can say that, uh, getting a lot of people unhappy. Um, but in the end, the people start to realize, and as we started to protect it, they start to see the reefs recovering. They were making more fish. Uh, I made a specific point of only hiring people from the fishermen to come and work for me. Because, of course, we're taking away from their area of their um, work area with the fishing that, but uh, also so we should be giving it back to them. At the same time, I figured if I use people from the fishermen, explain to them what I'm doing, they'll go back and explain to their own friends and that um, what I'm doing and hopefully have them understand it more. Uh, that's really how it all worked. Um, disseminate the information slowly and then they realise that things were getting better. I've actually had a couple of ones. One of the ones who was one of the head of the or the cyanide fishing organizations for the aquarium fish, and mm -hmm. told me and reporters went go with them to uh, that he actually really hated me and was wondering what to do with me because I was sending him bankrupt. And he said now he's very happy because all his fishermen friends uh, kind of got work. They're catching fish and they're surviving much better than before. And that and I just recently had one guy that I had arrested several times for dynamite fishing i went to a friend's birthday and uh as i'm walking out of the guy's house i hear this fuck chris and this harsh strong harsh voice i'm like uh oh what you remember me i said uh who are you he says katut he katut who yeah katut used to get arrested for dynamite fishing uh oh <laughs> and he kind of had a like a fairly aggro voice on him and he reached out his hand he said thank you he said, I didn't realize what damage I was doing then, uh, but because you kept getting me arrested, I finally realized and I changed ways of catching fish to more more sustainable methods on that and told his other friends who were doing the dynamite fishing to stop as well. So wow. it's kind of like I get these stories 20, 30 years after things have happened, along with the stories of the, the kids then, who are adults now. And um, actually, as I said the other day, I had one come down from the village doing it very similar to anything to this podcast and asking me or interviewing me about how I've been able to do this and why and all that. And say why, I can't really say. It just 
just everything happens. I'm a problem solver. I see these problems and I just got to go and find the root of the problem, fix that, not fix symptoms as people, most people do. Actually go and yeah. find the root, root of the problem, fix that and the problems go away. Really, truly inspiring, Chris, because that's uh, simple things, right? And you're getting that uh, whole ecosystem there just evolve into becoming more sensitive, aware, and you've changed generations of uh, people's livelihoods as well. But a question then, have you seen the reefs revive? Because you started this quite some time ago, right? Almost it's been, what, about 15, 20 years since you started the reefs? It's been about 30 years since I got here and started it off. Yeah, I have seen them recover really well, doing right. great. They suffered a bit during COVID uh, because a lot of people out of work um, mm. who was waiters, gardeners, other things. There's no work around. So they started going out spearfishing to catch fish for their families. Unfortunately, right. the main fish that they caught were the parrotfish because oh. they're so easy to catch at night. And parrotfish are very, very important to the reefs. They say they're cleaners of the reefs, the parrotfish, the um, sea urchins, spiny sea urchins, the other creatures. And, that, and they're the ones that got disappeared during COVID. And uh, so we are seeing an influx of um, algae on the reefs at the moment, especially the reefs on the beach, because there's no parrotfish there to clean them. So that's a project I've got to try and do and get more parrotfish coming in now. Um, because the people are now back working as gardeners, working as kitchen hands, working as room part people, working the, in the tourism right. industry. So, yeah. uh, but, but, but otherwise, but it needs to recover very well. Yeah, but it's really interesting. It's really interesting to, just as you're explaining it, right? For a, yeah. for a layman, it, uh, you're explaining it in such a simple way that connects the dot between tourism, the environment, sustainability, just such a practical example because... Uh, uh, COVID hit, and then you, in other parts of the world, they say, oh, um, wildlife, restoration, air got cleaner because there was less pollution. But then you've got an example of the complete opposite because people went and fished and then the reefs got affected. And, and just that whole connection that we make is so important that we need to realize it. But thank you for sharing that. Um, My pleasure. I try to keep the KISS principle. Uh, yes. and look at it, keep it simple, look at it in a simple way, find simple, um, not repairs, specific ways to fix it, and it tends to work. Once you start to complicate it too much, it becomes more complicated and more difficult to do. Um, that. So uh, I just, I think, was in the right place at the right time with the right attitude. And... Um, and things have just kind of continued to happen. What, what's your vision for the next five years? What would you like to see happen? What are you working on? What's your next big project? I want to retire properly. <laughs> but to do that, I've got to um, have people take over. Right. I had the opportunity to sell my property there here. Uh, that would have made me quite rich. And uh, I couldn't sleep for a couple of nights. And I thought, no, I can't. Because if I do, they'd probably just bring a big bulldozer, flatten the whole place. There goes the the turtle hatchery. There goes the work we're doing on the reefs. There goes the, the dance school that we have there. There goes everything else there. And uh, I couldn't do that. So I said, no. So what we're coming up with now is that before I never wanted too much 
administration paperwork to be done and sorts of um, um, research and all that to be done. My idea right. was get the people changed, have them doing the right thing. Then later on, we can bring in all the other stuff. We've got a lot of the information. I just need someone to come through and analyze it all and put it forth. When we report every month to the, the conservation department. But what I want to do now is start doing some things with having some people working with the local universities, maybe have people coming through thesis and do stuff research with the turtles, also with the re. Uh, want to set up a program of training people for to become reef divers. And this is training lay people. I've done it before with the local people, and most of them right. are working with our dive centers now, and they're very careful. Part of you know, train them how to look after the reefs, have them look after the reefs, and then when they work as a dive guide, they will look after the reefs because it's they've done the work before, and it's their their workplace, so they're good to look after that. So I want to try and set up a program to have other people come, maybe a five day thing. Uh, five, you know, with they do a couple of days of training. The other days they're doing fun dives, but while they're fun diving, they're doing reef gardening. So I have an inbuilt that wherever they go, they have an awareness. They know if they see a damaged bit of coral, they know what to do with it. And that's so right. that we're working with a lot of little bits of coral, repairing by a lot of people, makes a lot of protection for, for the reefs all over the world. Right. Uh, that and um, I'm working with young kids now, musicians, and uh, they're doing great. The musical ability of people here is incredible on that. So um, I've got, you know, I did some music back in my early days and I've got back into that during COVID. And so, uh, and worked with these young people and uh, it's a great delight. So I always find things. My staff now look after the turtles really well. Other ones look after most of the reefs. And each thing I kind of do, I kind of, I'm happy to train people to take over from me and make me redundant there because yeah. then I can start doing something else. So I'm forever doing something, um, but I want to get that up more with the, a bit of research there because we do have three species of turtles coming and laying eggs here on that beach in this nine kilometre of the, the village. And wow. that's pretty unusual in the world to have three different species, not just coming past, but actually coming and laying eggs. We do have another species, uh, leatherbacks who come past here but don't lay eggs here because – they need to surf the big waves to bring them in because they're so big. But right, we have the right. hawkshaw, green turtle, and olive ridley turtles coming and nesting here. So kind of needs more research done here. Uh, we need to take it up to the next step now. So I need to find people who are willing and able to do that, to put their kind of hearts into it to do that. And uh, I do have a couple of people in mind over here. Hopefully I like to be local people. And... Um, so it's, uh, yeah, kind of that's my, my dream. I'll kick back, take some time to spend more time with my two kids and um, uh, do a bit more stuff for my life. I'm not a big traveller, so I don't need to go places. But, uh, yeah, then keep right. an eye out more. Just and know that when I'm no longer around, everything's going to keep going. Chris, that does not sound much like retirement. It just sounds like keeping yourself busy doing other things. <laughs> Well, people <laughs> often ask me, often ask me, do I work here? And I say, no. They go, huh? I say, I live here. Right. It's not working, it's living. Yeah. Well, working, I'd be trying to think, well, hang on, I'm not getting paid enough for this and I'm doing too much of it. But living here, 
and seeing the results and it's it's that's more incentive than lots and lots of money i could get lots of money as a computer engineer before but that's not the, the thing about life amazing brilliant that i'm so glad that you did not sell the resort and, and you're right they would have just come in put a concrete air-conditioned big building there and probably done, done a lot of damage so you won't retire because you're doing what you're really passionate about right you'll just keep That's doing right. it. yeah 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 i just like doing things i take yeah. a day off to rest and i i kind of like this is boring i can't rest so i got to do that right. now i've got to say a plug in here while i've got yeah is i do have three indian uh, three indian partners who uh, right. have a Darren here with me and came in around about the year 2000. And I've got to say thank you so much to them because they've kind of left me alone to do what I do. And right. they've supported me very, very well. And they haven't been partners to say, okay, we're not making much money. What are you going to do? What, or enough money. What are you going to do? What's your plan? They said, Chris, just do what you do. That's what we want. And place yeah. that we can come and go diving, come and have a holiday every year or a couple of years. And then for the children to take over from them in the future. So I've got to say, Asset Sujit and Rajesh, thank you a lot. You've been the best partners ever. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, and, and that's brilliant. And, and you have inspired me to come over and visit you and see the place and see how we can help. At least what we will definitely do is get the word out there and uh, let more people know the amazing stuff that you're doing, have more people come there and, and you know, just spread the word. But that's brilliant. Uh -huh. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. You know, one of the questions I always ask at the end of every episode is, how do you keep yourself motivated? Because the podcast is called The Shiny Happy People. So it's about uh -huh. what motivates you, what makes you wake up in the morning. But I'm going to guess I know your answer, but I'd love to hear it from you. What makes you wake up in the morning and what, motiv what keeps you motivated? Actually, it's the local people and the kids. I've always been one to work a lot with kids, and I believe they're the future for all of us. And uh, I remember sometime I was really frustrated with the door and ready to pack up, and some of the kids, the young ones from the dancing, come up to me and said, Pat Chris, or they call me Pat Nyoman here, what's wrong? Is that? And they all just hugged, gathered around me, gave me big hugs. Anytime I see them, they all give me hugs. And, uh, and that's the same thing. It's just like the appreciation from the kids, uh, appreciation from the parents, the other people, the people who aren't at the top end of the village, the people who are the real villagers and here, as well as the others, and I don't discount those, but uh, they really appreciate and sometimes just a smile, sometimes walk past and say, hello, hello, and wave, and things like that. It's the little things in life that I think are most important. And that's why I say, as I said before, I live here and live with yeah. the people here. I didn't come here to make a lot of money. I didn't come here to change everything. But things have changed because I've been here, but hopefully changed for the better. Uh, people are happier, more ones are staying here to work here instead of having to go away. The hills are getting more green. The seas are getting more blue or richer. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very satisfying. And I'm sure that fisherman who came and said, you in a gruff voice and you got worried the guy you got arrested a few times who said thank you yeah. for changing his life 
also kept you going for a few days, right? Those kinds of stories. All those little things, and it happens so often. It's just like, it's, I don't know how to explain it. It's just a great feeling. And uh, uh, you don't get up and go, I've got to go and do that again. It's get up and, oh, what do I do today? I don't know. Let's see what happens. Um, Things just happen here. And as I said in the start, I think it's someone is guiding me, someone or something or whatever. Um, it is a lot of what my father used to do with helping a lot of people who was a policeman before and you have a lot of ones come and say, thank you, Sarge. Uh, you gave me a kick up the butt all those years ago. My friends are all in jail or dead because you scared the crap out of me. I'm still alive. That my son seems to be following in my footsteps as well, as well as my daughter. So um, it's uh, heredity, I think. Yeah. We got no well, escape. Chris, using that policeman metaphor, your nature's policeman and permita. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Yeah, your yeah, policing yeah, yeah. there. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. And uh, you need to write a book. You need to write a book on your journey. There's stories there. <laughs> that makes me you a paper. Actually, I've had a lot of people come and say, do need to do a, a, a biography of me and others yeah. that are ready to come, I say, but maybe if you do a, a real biography on me or a biography on me or whatever, I'm going to have to leave the island. But um, I have to make sure it's heavily edited. No, but, um, yeah, I do do that. And that's what the ones from the village came and did the other day to get my right. story as I'm one of the few, I'm about the only one of the original pioneers here who is still alive, still alive and kicking here. So um, we're trying to catch it. And, uh, yeah, someday I've had, had some writers say when you're ready let us know we'll come over so well i'm, I'm glad i got some of your story on audio so you have an uh-huh. audio book already right so in a way <laughs> and the next yeah. 20 chapters become later yes 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 brilliant thank you so much chris my pleasure thank you very much Dine. Let's just... i'll see you i'll see you in the resort one of these okay days. look forward to it okay Cheers. take care and hello to everyone there in india okay thanks thanks so much mate bye Wow. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I said it earlier with Chris, I could have gone in another dozen directions. And uh, there's so much that he's doing. Uh, I've made a commitment to try and get across to uh, Pimutaran and see him there, visit the hatchery. And I'd encourage all of you to get the word out what Chris is doing, the amazing work. And we need a lot more of these sustainability warriors to help us make an impact. So stay tuned for more. Another guest very soon. Take it easy, folks. Over and out.